The preaching of God's Word is found then in 2 Peter chapter 3, there at verses 17 and 18. 2 Peter 3, the last two verses, 17 and 18, though we'll reserve the last portion of verse 18, the Lord willing, unto next week. So hear then the Word of God, 2 Peter 3, verses 17 and 18. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. These two verses focus our attention this afternoon as we come to the conclusion of this epistle. You'll notice that final portion we'll keep for our next time, the Lord willing, as we think of the glory both now and forever that is to be given unto our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But we come to consider this final exhortation and how fitting it is that Peter would conclude this epistle in such a way. He concludes with the essence of what he began with. He exhorts, as you'll remember, even turning perhaps to the opening, that Peter was exhorting God's people that they would receive of the grace given and give all diligence, verse 5, to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and so on. What is that? It's the call to grow in grace. It's the call to grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in many ways, the whole of this epistle in various ways is addressing this thing, that the Lord's people are called to grow. They're not called to stay where they are, not to be satisfied with the attainments that the Lord has brought them to, but they're ever to be pressing forward, even as the Apostle Paul said, I press on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So every Christian is called to press on. Never to say, I've now arrived, I'm going to sit, I'm going to take a spiritual retirement. It's not the case. But there's ever diligence in this life for the Christian. This is why, in one sense, the church is called the church militant throughout all this life. That howsoever long the church exists in this present world and members thereof, We are members of the church as it is presently at war against sin and lusts and Satan. That war never ceases until our last breath is taken and ultimately never ceases until our King returns and utterly vanquishes the foe and blesses His beloved people. Well, you'll notice the text itself. Peter reminds the uh, his, the people, about what he's just written. Seeing ye know these things before. What things? The false teachers, their error, the certainty of Christ's return, the judgment to come. Since you know these things, and notice how he addresses them, beloved. It doesn't come with just a stern warning. But the warning, however stern it is, is motivated by a love for the people. This is something our culture doesn't understand. They pick, as it were, one or the other. They say, well, you can either be stern and severe and solemn, or you can be loving, warm, and tender. But the Scriptures are often combining these two things together. There is a very clear warning. Beware, 
lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. And yet the directness of it is yet motivated by love, a true concern for the people. Parents know this by nature. They sit their children down, they look them in the eye, and they warn them about certain dangers. They don't laugh and joke and carry on. They're sitting the children down, they're saying, listen, we're about to cross this road. I need you to look me in the eye here. There's no bolting across the road. There's holding mom and dad's hand. There's looking both ways. There's paying attention to my voice. And why is there such care in that? It's not because the parents despise their children. It's quite the opposite. They love their children. They want their children to be safe and protected. And so they're being very serious. Their voice may be very solemn because it's not a joking matter. You've heard stories and, oh, the tragedy that takes place when parents have witnessed their own children uh, come to the end of their life through some accident. Oh, the tragedy that grips the soul of the parents. And every parent has that as a sense of what could happen. And so they solemnly warn their children, and not only about physical things like crossing the street, but they warn them as well about other dangers, spiritual dangers, moral dangers. And the world says, well, just let them go on. Let them carry on. But parents who love their children say, you need to know there are significant dangers and this path you see many on is a path that leads to destruction. There's not joking about it because it's not a joking matter. And yet the serious nature of it is there because of a sincere love. And that's what Peter's doing. He's expressing a serious warning because of a significant love to the people of God. What is the warning? It's beware. The word beware is actually a word that could be translated guard or watch. And so soldiers had a watch. Castles, they would have a watch set up. They're watching. They're looking for the enemy. That's what's meant here. There's a careful and considerate looking out and saying, Is there danger coming? And that's what the Christian is called to do. To watch. To set guard. To keep watch. For what? Lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. It's an interesting use of language. You see this idea of departing, being led away. But even the word error intends this idea of wandering. So you could translate it, being led away with the wandering of the wicked. There's this drifting of the wicked. They're departing from the right path. They're taking little steps here. It's not far off. It's a little off. But soon enough, it's meandering away from the right path. And Peter says, listen, you need to pay attention. This little step off the path is the first step unto destruction. It's not something we say, well, it's not that far off the path. It's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. We say, no, get your foot back on. Beware. You see many wandering off the path, but who are they that are wandering off the path? Peter says, they're the wicked. And if you follow them, you'll partake of their own destruction. You'll fall from 
your own steadfastness. That's the warning in our text. But it's followed by an exhortation. In fact, an exhortation that helps us avoid this spiritual danger. You know, there's a fear sometimes that grips people in earthly things. They see danger and so they they lock their doors, they sit still and they say, now I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm here by myself, I'm sitting still. But the Christian is not called to that. That's not the way to avoid spiritual danger. The way of avoiding spiritual danger is set before us. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If we are to avoid the spiritual danger of meandering and wandering off unto our own demise, the way to do that is by a gracious activity of our souls pursuing maturity, growing. In other words, the way is not just to stand here and avoid walking off the path. It's to continue progressing down the path that the Lord has marked out for us. That's what the, uh, uh, the Lord calls us to here. Grow in grace. Now, the word grace is a word that can be used in many ways. You are saved by grace through faith. It speaks of that activity of God saving our souls. But there's also a way in which it speaks of the grace He places within us. The grace of faith. Faith is a grace. It comes because of God's saving grace, but He gives us that gracious gift of faith whereby our souls then trust in the Lord. He plants within us love by which we exercise our souls and our very bodies unto the service of others. He causes us to deny ourselves, to repent. These are graces. And this is what Peter is meaning. We can't grow in God's saving grace as if His grace which is given to us is something that increases. He's given us His grace. But what here Peter intends are those inner gifts of grace that he plants within each Christian that are to mature and develop, very similarly to what he's mentioned already in this epistle. So what we see here is the way of avoiding the spiritual danger of declension is by the gracious activity of our souls maturing. So consider then two things this evening. Firstly, the danger of declension. And secondly, the prevention of declension. Declension has to do with declining, falling down. You'll see the idea of it when he says that you fall, you're in danger of falling from your own steadfastness. You're slipping back. That's the danger. So as we think of the danger of declension, it's worth noting what declension is. So we know what the danger is. Well, the danger is known in a couple of ways. What is declension? Well, one thing it can be is it can be the display of real apostasy. What does that mean? It can be the display of one who professed faith so declining that they're showing their true colors and they're departing from the faith. That's a way that can be spoken of. You see this in some sense in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. If after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. 
but it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and so on. In some sense, this isn't properly declension because they never had true life. But in our experience, we can see that they're lessening their pace. They once were on the right path, they've turned away from the Lord. We have examples of this throughout church history. There was a faithful man, it seemed, in days of the First Reformation. His name was John Spottiswood. And he was one who was zealous for the Lord and the Reformed faith. But then dangled before his eyes was the compromising temptation of the king to submit to the king in all things of worship and the king would then appoint him to be a bishop over the church. And he compromised. And there's another man that many of you have heard of, Robert Bruce, a faithful man who had similar temptations given him, but by God's grace, he overcame them. And on Bruce's deathbed, John Spottiswood met with Robert Bruce. And Robert Bruce looked and said, I know who you are. You're a rebel against our God. You are a traitor to the king. The man had turned from his former steadfastness. He had turned aside from the divine prerogative of God over his church and worship and doctrine, and he had abandoned it in order to attain earthly treasures that an earthly king would give instead of the heavenly treasures which the heavenly king would give. That can be in one sense a declension. And indeed, the false teachers were those who had begun by professing faith, but had turned away from the truth unto their own demise. More properly, declension is the sinful lessening of one's faith, love, and obedience. The cooling of our affections to the Lord. You can see this in the book of Revelation when the Lord reproves His people in Revelation chapter 2 and there at verse 5. Christ comes and He says in verse 4, I have somewhat against thee. Now what's interesting is the first three verses are commending this minister and the church of Ephesus. He says, I know your works and labor and patience and all of these things. How, verse 3, you have borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. He's speaking to faithful people. But he says, I have something against you. I have something I've seen in you that's not as it should be. What is it? Well, it's not their doctrine. It's not their endurance. It's not those things. What is it? It's because thou hast left thy first love. That earnestness, that zeal that once shone brightly in your life is now dimmed and cooled. And so what does Christ say? Hear what He says. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. You were here you've fallen down. You were here, you've declined. You're in a state of declension. Remember from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works and so on. That's declension. There are attainments the Lord brings us to in the exercise of faith and love and service. Oh, those seasons that every true Christian knows of delightful study of His Word, 
of seeking God's will and saying, oh, he's put his finger upon one of my treasured sins, but God be praised, he gives repentance, and we turn from it. We're willing to cut off our right hands and pluck out our right eyes. We're willing to say no to many things in order to say yes to what is better. Oh, those seasons for the Christian are sweet seasons indeed. And yet far too many of us know what it is to look back and to see those seasons in the past and to say, oh, I'm not where I once was. Once I approached the Word of God with delight to hear the words of the lover of my soul who has given himself for me, once I approached prayer, not as this formal splattering of words here and there, but of the true lifting up of my heart's desire unto my beloved Savior. Once I knew what it was to look upon the faces of God's people and with love seek to serve them. Once I knew what it was to be willing to speak a word to one in sin and say, you need the Lord Jesus Christ. But so often we see what goes around in parades as maturing and tempering is many times a compromising. And so there are those who are zealous, sometimes out of balance and need correction, but then as they age, they become those who are less concerned about the lost. They're less concerned about their own soul's care. They're less concerned about meditating upon God's Word, of worshiping the Lord, of exercising faith. They, as it were, recline and sit down. But spiritually, they're declining. Their hearts are cooling. A dear minister once said, He had justified his silence to the lost with the notion that he was now maturing and was not needing to be so sharp against sin. But the Lord showed him that that was not maturing. It was a cooling of his affection for the Lord and for his people. And so it can be with any of us. There's this attainment of love to Christ, all by God's grace, a delight to be in him, and yet then a turning from Him. We see this pictured for us in the Song of Solomon. Though there's much confusion today, and many unfortunately in reform circles even denying what the church has long acknowledged, that this is the testimony of Christ's love to the church, we see the beauty of such a truth. Christ is the true husband. The church is the true bride. But notice something that here is mentioned. You see it in chapter 4 of Song of Solomon. There's this testimony of a delight in the Lord. There's this testimony of desiring Him, of seeking Him in, in, verse, in chapter 3, by night on my bed. I sought Him whom my soul loveth. I sought Him, but I found Him not. I'll rise now and go about the city. What's the soul doing? Seeking Christ. I desire Christ. I need Christ. I want Christ. And then chapter 4 speaks of Christ's love of the church. What happens in chapter 5? Christ speaks. Verse 1, I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends. Drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. Christ comes in the fullness of desire to be with His bride 
to love and embrace his bride. But what does the bride say? I sleep, but my heart waketh. It's the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. And what is the response of her that two chapters previous said, I sought him, I desired him, I pursued him, I would not be satisfied without him. Now Christ appears saying, Here I am for you. And what does she say? I've put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I've washed my feet. How shall I defile them? It's not the time now. Oh, brethren, is it not the case that each of us can look upon such seasons in our own life where once there was fervent desire and longing for Christ, His Word most precious to us, no sin would be justified There was all-out war declared against sin and temptation. There was intimate delight experienced with fellowship with Christ. And then it finds us that little by little we've wandered away. And our love has cooled. Well, how does this declension occur? There are many ways, but Peter identifies several things in particular. One thing we can see is that declension occurs when one is unwatchful. When they aren't, Christ uses the word circumspect. When they aren't paying attention. Proverbs tells us that we are to keep our heart with all keeping. We're to guard it with all our labor. Now think of it this way, children. If your parents gave to you a sack of gold and they said, this is worth a lot of money. You wouldn't just be sort of casting it here and throwing it there and showing it to your friends and so on. It's important. It's expensive. It's something to protect. Perhaps it's in your pocket. Your hand's on your pocket. It's holding it. It's guarding it. We were in Mexico and our passports had to be with us. And so there's a regularity of checking. Is it in my pocket? Is it still there? If, if there's a question needed, I have to have it with me. It's being guarded. It's not something you just put on the stand and move along. It's with you. It's important. It's special. Well, think of it this way. What is more important than your soul? What's more important than your soul's being Provided safety with Christ. And here, Peter says, Beware, watch, pay attention, lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. In some sense, he's saying this, if you would maintain your own steadfastness, you must watch. Do you know what's happening in our culture today? there is a loss of the sense of what watchfulness is. There's a willingness to say, well, it's just a little sin. Look at how many other people sin far more than I do. Oh, it was just a little use of the Lord's name in vain. I can tolerate that. I'm mature enough to allow words that profane God's name to enter my mind, the mind of my children, the mind of my family, because we can tolerate it. We are strong enough to resist whatever temptations 
are there. In truth, what's happening is there's a lack of watchfulness. Think of it this way. If there were a serial killer on the loose, knock, 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 there's the face that's been plastered on every sign, every newscast at your door. You don't say, listen, we're armed. We've got uh, you know, 9 millimeters. We've got AR-15s in our house. We're okay. Why don't you come on in and spend the night in our guest room? You want to know what you do is you pull out your gun, you point at the man, and you'd say, you aren't stepping a foot in my house. You aren't coming in for a cup of water. And you'd be dialing 911 saying, that man who has done all manner of wickedness is here, and I'm not letting him go one step further. But so much across the world, Christians are saying, what's a little bit idolatry? What's a little bit of God's name being blasphemed? What's a little bit of fornication so long as it's in a storyline that's rather good? What's a little bit of these sins? We're mature enough. We can handle it. We're okay. Whatever else that is, it's not watchfulness. It's not watching and realizing those are things that have led many astray unto their own demise. Watchfulness, rather the lack of it, is what begins to lead us little by little off the path. Sort of like when you're driving and you start paying attention to this thing off in the distance or this billboard or this what's happening over there and you start to drift. You're not fully out of your lane, but you're starting to lean out of your lane because you're not watching what you should be watching. That's one way it occurs. Another way it occurs is by the error of others. It's not that they are the efficient cause forcing it upon us, but they become wicked examples that we start to look at and say their lives are rather okay. They've sort of got it together. And so notice how Peter says it, being led away with the error or the waywardness of the wicked. We start to entertain false teachers And we say, well, I can sift through it. I can tolerate it. I'll be okay. Not realizing that we're already losing the very battle and the war. Because so soon as we begin to fix upon false teachers, our feet turn from the straight path onto the path path that is crooked, and we begin following them. Another way is by seeing what Peter says in his exhorting us to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This perhaps is the essential uh, feature that it's ignorance of Christ. Our culture doesn't appreciate the discipline it takes to learn about Christ. And so churches today are fixed upon, they're founded upon this principle of entertainment. Light shows, music that moves, all of these things, let's have all the best comforts, let's have all that music clubs and entertainment scenes, whatever they have, let's bring it in so everyone appreciates and enjoys the show. It's amazing, isn't it? That for many, worship has become a show to entertain. Whatever else is going on, there's not the disciplined instruction regarding the person, the work, and the will 
of Jesus Christ. Those kinds of churches are today looked upon as rather antiquated and out of place. That worked in the 1800s, in the 1500s, in the 200s, but let's get real, we're in the 2020s. We are of an age of technology. We need all of these things if we're going to reach the people. When in fact what's being said is, we don't need doctrine, we don't need to learn about Christ, we need to be entertained, we need to be pleased, and so on. But brethren, notice, it's not just the doctrine as it were, but this word knowledge is is fuller. It's not just the doctrinal orthodoxy of the person of Christ, it's actually knowing our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just knowing about Him, but actually knowing Him. There are many people in this world that you know about that you don't know. The president you know about. None of you know him. There are rich people you know about, but none of you are at his Thanksgiving table. You know about them. You can say much about them. There are fan clubs about them that can say this is how high they are, tall they are, this is how much they weigh, this is their net worth, these are the businesses they own, this is what they did when they were 22 years old, this is what they're doing now, this is the house they lived at, that's the street they lived across, and so on. They know all sorts of things about them. But there's zero knowledge of them. Knowing someone is based on the idea of relationship. It's not just knowing the facts. We have excellent statements regarding the truth of Christ in our confession and catechisms. Excellent statements that capture not only the uh, teachings of Scripture, but the controversies that have developed throughout history and the answers to them. Brilliant statements of orthodoxy. But you can memorize each of them. You can recite each of them and still not know Jesus Christ. To know Him demands a relationship with Him. And Peter is calling us to grow in that. And so one way that declension happens is when we either stop thinking about the truth regarding Him, or even if we maintain those, we stop enjoying a relationship with Him. Every marriage breakdown I've witnessed is not because the person didn't know about the other. It's because they ceased relating to one another in a relationship. There was no longer the listening to the other. There was no longer the serving of the other. The relationship became spoiled. And though they lived in the same house, whatever else took place, they drifted from one another. And soon enough it was evident they had declined. And what happens in marriage happens as well in our own souls with Christ. We may have all the right answers still. Someone could wake us up at 2.30 in the morning and say, uh, who is the only Redeemer of God's elect? And we could recite the catechism, and we'd be right. But if they woke us up and said, have you been enjoying a relationship with Christ? If we were to answer truly, we'd have to say, I know a lot about Him, but I can't say that of late I have known Him. This is how drift begins. This is how declension occurs. This is what Christ was reproving in Revelation 2 when He says you've lost 
your first love. You've left it. There was a, a great vehemence of desire. Now it's cooled. This is how declension occurs. But then secondly, how then does one prevent it? You'll notice he doesn't say, but stand. He doesn't say, but sit down. He doesn't say, just remain. He actually says, grow. If you're to overcome and avoid the spiritual danger of declension, there must be the soul's activity of maturing. There must be growth. In other words, whereas we can liken declension unto dying, we can liken maturity as unto growing. That's what Peter here says. Grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Growth is a beautiful promise given to God's people. In many places you see it stated. We see this and we sing of it as we will later in Psalm 92. There at verse 12, The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Some of you perhaps have been to the Pacific Northwest and you've seen these mighty redwoods. I've not been privileged to see them. But people speak of finally coming and seeing and they can't get their arms around these trees. And they look up and they wonder how they exceed buildings that they've seen before. How great these are. And though Psalm 92 is not speaking of those, the cedars of Lebanon were magnificent trees, beautiful trees, large trees. The very wood that was used for the construction of various edifices recorded in the Old Testament. And we're told that the righteous shall grow like them. They shall grow up. Now, something that one told me who once saw these great trees is that as you look up and see these trees through which a car can drive, you can look aside and you see a little sapling. What is that? It's not the full-grown redwood, but it's the beginning of that which will grow to be a mighty tree in our estimation. And the truth is also of Christians. We don't start out as these flourishing things. We start out as a seed that begins with a shoot and becomes a sapling and begins to grow. Well, how is it then that we prevent declining? It's by continuing to grow. How is this accomplished? Well, Peter says two things. That we're to grow in grace and we're to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we can say, to prevent declension, we need to exercise grace. And we need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already talked about what exercising grace is. Grace in general has to do in this context with faith and hope and love. Those exercising things of our soul, those issuings of our soul in faith and hope and love, were to employ them. Some of these young boys that are here will become young men soon enough and they'll start thinking about muscles and strength and how they're going to exercise and how they're going to get bigger and stronger and faster and so on. And they'll realize it doesn't happen just by itself. It doesn't happen by sitting down, turning on the television, and watching programs about fitness. It doesn't happen by having all the best equipment. It doesn't happen by having the best shoes. It doesn't happen by having a membership at a gym. It happens by one's body 
exercising itself. Finding resistance, pushing resistance, pulling resistance, running, sprinting, and all of these things. The body, if it's to grow in strength, must be exercised. The same is true of the soul. This is why the Scriptures regularly are calling us onto that very thing. That He hasn't just given us grace to sort of sit and settle down in our souls, but it's to be active in and through us. So notice just a few examples. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and at verse 2, we see this expression, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that ye may grow thereby. There's to be this desiring, this longing, this panting after. Our souls are to be exercising themselves toward and upon the pure milk of the Word. You can see elsewhere in Ephesians and chapter 4, many places in this chapter, but notice in particular Ephesians chapter 4 and there at verse 15. We're to exercise love. How? By speaking the truth in love. You see, love is not just this feeling. It gets exercised through our speech, through our actions. And so what's put in us is, as it were, brought out by us. So He gives us grace. He gives us love. And so then we're to stir that up and to speak truth in love. But notice what happens as we do. As we're exercising love in and by our speech, we grow up into Him in all things. The exercise of grace is doing what? It's strengthening us. It's maturing us. It's growing us. You see this as well in Colossians and chapter 3, verse 16. Notice, Paul says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So there's an activity that's to be active in us. Notice, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So how is it that the Word of Christ dwells in us? How is it that it matures us in wisdom? Paul says, by singing these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's an exercise of faith, singing God's praise, that plants His Word in our souls and builds it up in us. So when we're singing, you know, there's a ton of mistakes regarding worship today, but one is this notion that, well, you know, we need to be more participative in worship. Instead of one man preaching, reading, praying, what we need to do is get the people involved. And so, why don't you come up and read? Why don't you come up and sing a solo? Why don't you come and do this thing? But really what's happening is first, an obliteration of the ordinances of God's worship, and secondly, a misunderstanding that we are engaged actively in worship at all those times. That if one's preaching, what are we active then doing otherwise? We're listening. We're exercising faith to receive God's Word. When we're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, what are we doing? We're ministering unto others. We're having the Word of God dwell in us richly in all wisdom that we may mature. True worship, regulated by God's Word in accordance to His Word, is truly participatory. The people of God are participating 
as the king desires, and by that means, as their souls are exercising faith, hope, and love, they're growing. It's interesting. As we exercise and give to God glory to his name, he actually provides us growth and grace. He actually strengthens our souls to serve him. Another place in Colossians chapter 4, and notice there at verse 6, he says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. What's he saying? Exercise that grace of wisdom in your speech so that you're thinking, you're exercising your soul in order to answer those who bring objections to the truth and so on. We can multiply instances again and again and again that there is this exercise of grace in our souls and faith, hope, and love whereby we grow then and help others grow as well. But truly, we needed not to look beyond 2 Peter. Because Peter's already set this before us in chapter 1. When he says, verses 5 and following, Beside this, give all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, and so on. What's he saying? He's saying grow in grace. What grace? These graces. Faith, knowledge, virtue, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, charity. This is not a comprehensive list of all the various graces that are placed within our souls by the Lord our God, but it gives us a representative sample of what these things look like. And we can look at the fruit of the Spirit. And what are those? But graces He plants within us to be displayed and exercised elsewhere. So we're to give ourselves to growing and maturing and developing these things. And how do we do that? Well, preeminently, as we've already seen, by the means of grace that the Lord gives us. One example, and then we'll turn to consider the knowing of Christ. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, you see a picture of this in verse uh, 42. uh, Acts chapter 2, and you'll notice that In verse, rather, 46, we see, speaking of the disciples, they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. There's growth, personally and corporately. How? Because they're continuing daily in the exercise of grace, privately and publicly. In verse 42, you see the background of it more fully. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. They continued steadfastly. You know what's happened to a lot of people over the past 50 years is the opposite of that. And so whereas all churches, think of this for a moment, apart from frontier places and so on, in the history of America, all churches used to have two services on the Sabbath and a midweek service and perhaps other gatherings in various ways and times and places. Now it's counted to be mature just to have one service. Instead of thinking in terms of multiplying 
there's been the thought of reducing. And brethren, this is not a mark of maturity. It's a mark of declension. The church in America has declined. Whereas once there were flockings of people to hear faithful preaching that would say, whatever the cost, we're going to hear God's Word preached. Now people are content to say, well, Sunday's sort of busy, you know. I've got sports. I've got picnics. I've got things i got to get to. So is there a chance, church, that we can switch it up to have service on a Saturday night? You know, that would be more convenient for me. And then the church says, well, we want people to come, so why don't we switch it up? We'll have a Saturday night service and people can come to that so they can have their Sundays wide open and free to themselves. And brethren, that wasn't happening a hundred years ago. It would have been looked upon by almost every Protestant denomination as a massive failure, as a massive sin. But almost every denomination today is entertaining these kinds of movements. Why? Because the attainments of godliness have dropped to the floor. It's beneath the floor in the basement. That's where we are as a church today. That's not because of lack of means. It's not because of lack of provision. It's because of lack of the exercise of grace from our souls. That's why godliness is beneath our feet. We are privileged in ways that our forefathers never were. You could spend every free time that you have, every free second, reading something new that is godly. The publication of Puritan works today is unparalleled throughout history. You could spend the rest of your life never reading the same page over and being exposed to the best of doctrine, the best of godliness, the best of practice. And yet we find it hard to carve out five minutes' time to think for a moment upon one verse of God's Word. It's no wonder that we are where we are today. It's because there is the relinquishing of the diligent exercise of grace. Think of it this way. For many of us, the first time that there was an observed day of fasting and humiliation, a real day set apart for that purpose, was in the past five years. What's true of us is true of most of the church in America. Most Christians in America don't know what it is to set apart a day out of a sense of judgment, out of a sense of need to say, I'm not only abstaining from food, I am exercising my soul unto faith, prayer, repentance. We've got plenty that know what it is to put ashes on their forehead, to say, I'm not eating this food. You know what I'm going to give up? I'm giving up soda. Oh, why are you giving up soda? Because I'm going to grow in God. That is utterly ridiculous. It's a mockery of Christianity. It is not godliness. You want to impress somebody? Spend 10 minutes in prayer. Spend 10 minutes in focused, unhindered exercise of pouring out your soul, confessing your sins. These are things that make up those high watermarks of godliness. There's a story that is much treasured in our own history. 
when ministers, think of this for a moment, ministers and elders only, in the famed church of Edinburgh in St. Giles Cathedral, the place is full, only of everywhere you look, minister, elder, no one else. And the preacher preached, could have been Robert Bruce if I'm not mistaken, but whoever it was preached, and the Lord so blessed that these faithful ministers did nothing but weep and confess their own sins. It's noted in the 1500s as a very bacchum, a place of weeping, where they're confessing, they're pouring out their sins, they're pouring out their desires for God's forgiveness, they're pouring out the desires for Christ and His blessing upon His Word. They long for Christ. And it's hard for us today to spend so much as ten minutes personally confessing our sins. We have dropped the exercise of grace. What this means is we're in danger of being led astray. So if we are to prevent it, it's incumbent on us to exercise faith, hope, and love in the ways that we've seen. But the other thing is as noted by Peter the knowledge of Christ, that we would grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a whole industry today about matchmaking. It's in Christian, it's in secular world, and so on. And you get this sense that if you just know all the right attributes of this per, you know, person, this woman, this man, etc., that then you can figure it out. And you almost get this idea that people on these things, they have this sense of, well, I see that you like X, Y, Z, and A, B, C, D, F, and so on, all these different things. And therefore, I like those things. We can get on with one another. Whatever helpfulness there is in those things, and we don't deny, we know people who have been helped by those services, the help is needed actually to relate to the person. If you look at an ad of a person and say, That's who I'm going to marry. You're going to be in for massive confusion. You have to get to know the person. There has to be a getting to know you. Um, And so it is with any relationship. But so it is also with Christ. If we're to know Christ, we don't just sort of say, here's what He is, here are His attributes, but we then, as it were, enter into His presence knowing that it's a person to whom we pray. This is something we have to bring to our minds. Our prayers aren't just uttered out into the vast expanse of the air. Our words are spoken unto the person, Jesus Christ. Children, you probably had your parents say this to you before. Okay, look at me when you're talking to me, right? Children sort of like to look at this and they start talking and going on and mom or dad says, listen, you need to look at me. They're teaching you respect. They're teaching you a relationship. They're also needing to hear you. They also need to see you. And they realize faces and gestures and body language communicates things that can't be seen if one's looking elsewhere because a relationship includes those things. There's intimacy. So it is with Christ. We speak to Him. We express our souls to Him. We're not just throwing it out there We're taking our desires and we are placing it in His lap. And we're saying, Beloved Savior, hear my prayer. When we praise Him, we're not just rattling off fine phrases. 
we're actually having our souls fixed upon Christ and we're expressing our delights to Him. Oh, when we confess our sins, we're not just going through the road expressions memorized. We're actually feeling and sensing and we're coming to Christ and we're persuaded of His grace, but oh, we're mourning and we're saying, Christ, You who know me, You who know my sins, here's my sin. Forgive my sin. This is what it is to know Christ. In Christ alone is life. Christ says this in John 17 and verse 3. This is life eternal, that they know me, and so on. Nothing's greater than Christ. Paul says that in Philippians 3, that there is the excellency of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, there is a transformative grace in knowing Christ. You cannot be in Christ's presence by faith and remain the same. You cannot leave the presence of fellowship with Christ and be the same as when you began. Because He gives, as it were, something more of His beauty to His people. Notice in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, we see this very thing noted when Paul says that we've put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of Him that created Him. As our knowledge of Christ grows, it transforms us. It's as if we're being pressed with His likeness so that we better reflect Him. To know Christ. Oh, we've been long, but brethren, we close with this. There is no standing still that's safe. There is no remaining put that is secure. The way of safety is the way of faith exercising itself upon Christ. If you would be kept from declension, if you would be kept from being led astray by wicked men, your daily and constant need is the same as mine. That we daily live by faith upon Christ Jesus that we draw from Him by faith, that we confess our sins to Him in faith, that we plead His promises in faith, that we praise Him in love, that we exhort one another in love, that the grace He's put within us is daily exercised for the glory of His name and the good of His people. May God so bless, thus to preserve us by causing us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?